Over the centuries, followers of Jesus have recognized the value of the season of Lent to intentionally prepare our hearts and our minds to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. Lent is a word derived from a Latin root that connotes the idea of springtime, new life emerging from the dormancy of winter. And in the same way, the church has viewed Lent as a time of introspection and of taking inventory of our lives so that we can be intentional, both about removing the attitudes and practices that hinder us from following Jesus, and then adding formative habits that might help us to grow in Christlikeness. Now this year, our church has been walking through a sermon series based on the book by Stephen Smith titled, The Lazarus Life, Spiritual Transformation for Ordinary People. Rooted in the story of Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11, the premise of this series is that all of us are a bit like Lazarus. We may be following Jesus, but there are still parts of us that feel dead or broken or damaged or whatever term you want to use for those areas of your life that keep you from experiencing the fullness of life. Last week, we saw how Lazarus, when he came out of the tomb at the command of Jesus' voice, he was still wrapped in the grave clothes. He wasn't dressed for the occasion of new life. And many of us have placed our faith in Jesus, but we're still wearing these, these grave clothes. We're, we're wearing things that hold us back. We try and protect wounds from trauma or shame or regret or fears with all kinds of bandages. Bandages like anger and anxiety, addiction, or obsessive attempts to control every circumstance in our lives. And it goes on and on and on. There's probably endless grave clothes we could name. Now, last week we talked about the power in naming our grave clothes, in clearly articulating that which is holding us back, that which is preventing us from living joyfully and freely. And this week, we're going to turn toward the question of how we remove these grave clothes. Now, in John chapter 11, it's Jesus who calls Lazarus out of the tomb and into the light. Only Jesus can make a dead person alive again. There are certain things that only the power and grace of Jesus can accomplish. Jesus has to be part of the equation in bringing us from death into life. But notice the other partners in the story. Jesus isn't the one who rolls away the stone. He tells the crowds to do that. And once Lazarus is brought to life in the power of Jesus, Jesus tells the people to remove the grave clothes. Jesus does what only Jesus can do. That much is essential. But he is sure to include human community at every point that's possible. In the Lazarus Life book, in chapter 8, Stephen Smith talks about the communal necessity of removing the grave clothes. And I highly recommend that chapter, along with my sermon from a few weeks ago, The Stench of Transformation. In that sermon, I outlined five truths and attitudes of a community that can be a safe place for healing, where people can feel safe enough to remove their grave clothes at all. But today I want to root us in the scriptures by looking at Paul's pastoral counsel to the church at Colossae. How does Paul envision that we who follow Jesus remove our grave clothes, or as he puts it, the things that are destined for death? If you have your Bibles, we're in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. The Kennedy family read the passage earlier in the service, so we're not going to read it all here, but it might help you to have it in front of you for reference. 
Now, let me kick us off by reading the first three verses, which totally set the stage. Paul writes, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Did you hear it? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. This is so typically Paul. In nearly all of his letters, Paul writes to the churches as a pastor who believes that because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that all who are baptized into his name are in reality new creations. And Paul seems to be saying at every opportunity that Jesus has declared you new creations, so be who you already are in Christ. See, for Paul, when followers of Jesus aren't Christ-like, we aren't really being ourselves. As the chapter continues, Paul, Paul lists a bunch of different grave clothes, a bunch of attitudes and dispositions that don't belong to the new creation. They belong to that which will pass away with sin and death. So he lists a bunch of things like immorality, which is just a Bible word for sexual intimacy outside of marriage. And he mentions impurity, which is like the opposite of holiness. This is the stain we carry when we refuse to confess our sin and to repent of our sin. And then he talks about passion. That is when we let our appetites for pleasure or food or sex or money or comfort or power, when we let our impulses rule our lives. This leads to evil desire, which is a lot like passion. Evil desire is when we allow our good desires for good things of life to take over our lives, which then naturally slips into greed, which is the unchecked seeking after more than we need of anything. Greed, of course, then gives birth to idolatry because when we're greedy, we make the hunt for more and more whatever it is our de facto God. We simply can't be greedy and be obedient to Jesus who calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. So he goes on to list other things like anger and wrath and malice and slander, abusive speech and lying to one another, which then just makes me ask, now what? Like, how do we get rid of these grave clothes? How do we take them off? And I think this, this has been an important thing for me to come to grips with. And I just want to share it with you in case you're carrying a heavy burden. I think it's important to point out that we shouldn't expect absolute deliverance from any of our grave clothes. Like, it could happen, and I hope it happens, but I don't see it in Scripture where everyone is healed of everything, and I don't see it in real life where everyone is healed of everything. No one, to my knowledge, has ever reached perfection in this life. The walk of faith in Jesus isn't about being flawless, and it isn't about never having problems or struggles. It's about trusting in Jesus and moving in the right direction. Part of the process is not complete freedom from anger or complete freedom from lust or the temptation to gossip or any of the other vices or grave clothes. The process includes noticing that you're doing these things, that you're struggling with these things. Then in the same grace of Jesus and in his community, growing to a place of desiring holiness 
of desiring wholeness and life instead of those, those crutches and coping mechanisms that lead to death. So I'll ask again, how do we take off these grave clothes? I think that this passage in Colossians 7 gives us seven aspects of a holistic process uh, for growing, for, for healing. So first, we need to trust in the grace and power of Jesus. Paul's whole basis in all of his letters for calling us to be like Christ is only because Jesus calls us to new life. It's because for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and have received baptism, we are now new creations. And Paul knows that without Jesus, we are stuck in our tombs of death, let alone the wrappings of death. So, we must first begin with Jesus, declaring our desperate need for him regularly. We don't put ultimatums on Jesus. We don't bargain with him. We seek to trust that he has made us new, and we ask for power outside of ourselves to aid us in the journey of transformation. So it's got to begin with Jesus. And then second, we don't just take off our grave clothes. We put on the character of Jesus. See, taking off our grave clothes isn't simply about stopping certain behaviors. That's almost impossible to sustain. And it leads to this vicious cycle of trying and failing and trying and failing. Whenever you stop one destructive habit, you create a vacuum inside yourselves. So our habits are usually just the coping mechanisms for deeper pains. So like a person might overdrink because they're suffering from traumatic pain and they're trying to numb that pain. You take away the alcohol and they will still need to cover up that pain with something else. Or a person might gossip in order to make themselves feel important to other people. Take away the gossip and they're still going to need something else to dull their sense of insecurity and inferiority. So what Paul suggests is that we not only cease from living in our grave clothes, but that we put on a whole new moral and ethical wardrobe. Now, I know what you might be thinking. How do I do that? I've been trying to be better at these things my whole life. Trying hard to put on the new clothes of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience and so on, that might be part of the problem that leads to our failure. Dallas Willard was fond of saying that we should do a lot less trying and do a lot more training. Maybe you've heard of the five friends who run the YouTube channel Dude Perfect. It's two twin brothers and some friends from college, and they've made a great living in performing incredible trick shots in the sporting world. Here's a clip. All right, Cobes, get up in the sunroof. Cody's going to throw us a bomber. Let's do it, baby. This is the high-speed Frisbee catch. Oh, I'm a lightning flash, yeah, I'm coming fast. This is the rooftop pop. I could watch a slow-mo replay of that. A couple years back, Tyler made an iconic shot in left field right over there. This time, we're switching it up and using a football. This is the mini football boomstick.
impressive, right? If you were to just watch their highlights, you might think that all they have to do is try. You might think that they're so talented that all they do is just decide to try something and eventually it works out. But what you don't see behind the scenes are all the countless hours of practice and failure that goes into their success. Now, in relation to the removal of grave clothes, I want to say that the most profound ingredient to the success of Dude Perfect, to that team, it isn't their individual talent, it's their community. You see, they're all pulling for each other. They're all committed to the same goals, and they have a massive team of support staff that helps them to achieve their goals. We're no different. We need Jesus. And if we're going to put on the new clothes and remove the old, we're going to need to participate in Christian community. And this leads me to my five final points out of the seven overall points, okay? So here's number three. Participate in community committed to the way of Jesus. So much of life is a function of imitation. Humans are extremely social creatures, and we learn a tremendous amount from the actions and attitudes of those that we spend time with. The company we keep shapes us. I mean, it, it's just what happens. It's a fact of life. And if you want to get better like at quilting, you join a quilting club. And if you want to become a better woodworker, I, I guess you could join a woodworking club, right? Now, when you join a club, what do you do? You participate in it. Like when you join a soccer team or a dance class or an orchestra, you play, you participate. So don't just go looking for a church committed to the ways of Jesus. Help the church be committed to the ways of Jesus. See, by investing yourself into the way of Jesus, you'll find mutual encouragement. You'll be rooted in a group of people who will praise the virtues of Jesus as normal and natural and good as the normal way that life should be lived. And that is all contagious. Fourth, participate in Christian worship. In Colossians 3, Paul encourages our togetherness in song and thanksgiving and confession and community, and he's talking about worship. In Christian worship, we're exposed to the way of Jesus in multiple ways. Like, we hear God's word through the scripture reading. We hear God's word preached, proclaimed, unpacked, exposited for us. We participate through prayer. And through the expression of worship and song and poetry and silence, those areas that touch beneath and around our merely cognitive understanding. We participate through the sacraments, the thin places between heaven and earth at baptism and communion. We participate through the sharing of meals and life together, and hopefully that will happen again sometime this year. I can't wait. And we participate and grow through the serving of our community together and serving one another. In this multifaceted expression of worship in community, we actually practice taking off our grave clothes and putting on new life. We, we practice um, a little bit of death to self and selfishness, and we, we, we exercise the muscle of compassion and kindness and, and giving and love. Fifth, be a community that advocates for the humanity of all humans. It's no accident that while talking about putting on the new life of Jesus, Paul mentions the breaking down of walls that divide people. 
And specific to the setting of Colossae were racial tensions, religious backgrounds, social positions, and gender issues. Paul wants the church to know that in Christ, we are all one. And we have to recognize, especially if we're white and living in the Pacific Northwest, that many of the grave clothes that people of color carry are a result of trauma received because of racist people and racist policies. It's not enough for you and me to just internalize that we should not say or do racist things. See, for those who are hurting, we have to seek to be advocates. So how can I help create space for people to feel safe and to feel free to remove their grave clothes of pain for new life in Christ? This past week, we had yet another racially motivated killing that took place by an armed white man. This time against eight Asian American women. Hate crimes against Asians have gone up 150% since COVID-19 hit our shores. I was at one of my favorite Asian restaurants this week, and I've been going there for over 10 years now. I know the owners. We always talk about life when we go in there. And I simply said to my friend, how are you? My heart broke when I heard of the murders in Atlanta, and I just wanted to check in with you. I'm praying for you. Simple. Small, not hard to do, but it meant a lot to my friend who then proceeded to share some hard experiences they've encountered this year and, and to feel the connection between us and that it's, it's not just lip service, but that we're standing with someone and that, that there's safety uh, there in that relationship. Friends, our, our neighbors of color the women in our lives as well, the sexual minorities that we know? How could we advocate for their humanity in a world that is hateful and dangerous? Listen, we may not agree with everybody on their politics, right? We might not agree with everyone on their interpretation of scripture, but we need to refuse to demonize people with different opinions. And we need to hold people accountable who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who continually dehumanize other people. That's how we uh, can advocate. When we practice this sort of advocacy together, we're actually putting to death our own grave clothes of fear and racism and hatred, and we are putting on compassion and kindness and love. See, when we practice the way of Jesus together, we are training ourselves to be more like him. But let's face it, the Christian community is messy and imperfect, and at times it's infuriating. I, I wish it weren't so, but the church, all churches, this church, will let you down. Which leads to number six. Be a community that bears with one another. The community that Jesus was building in the Gospels was constantly disappointing. And he didn't abandon them, and he also didn't ignore them. And he wasn't passive with them, and he wasn't passive-aggressive. Like, he just told the truth on the one hand, and yet he remained with his friends on the other hand. Peter, who betrayed him, and James and John, who wanted to call down thunder on people who didn't agree with their, <laughs> their theology, right? And even Judas, Judas, who he knew would betray him, he allowed in his inner circle and held out hope for him until it was too late. Paul writes of his list of virtues with all lead to a verse in chapter 13, which says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, 
so also should you. Ouch. When I take a look at how Jesus has forgiven me and continues to forgive me, I have no moral high ground for being judgmental with other people. But if that's not convicting, listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together. He writes, The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be. And then he'll try and realize that life. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine friendship, so surely must we be overwhelmed with a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Right? So sometimes we have this, this idealized image in our mind of what church ought to be like, of what this community ought to be like, and we hold that up here. And when we're disappointed, which will happen if we hold it way up here, we just, we just want to blow the whole thing up. And that's what Bonhoeffer says. We'll destroy the church in frustration if we consistently uh, elevate it to some impossible standard. Let's not keep the imperfections of church from us loving it like Jesus loves it. In his wisdom and possibly in his sense of humor, Jesus has wrapped up our salvation and healing in and with this strange thing called the church. But that doesn't mean that we should confide in every single person in a church. We're all in various states of removing our grave clothes. And we've all got our own wounds and triggers, right? So some person might be going through something that makes them unsafe for us to share something with. Or, or maybe, you know, you've got a traumatic background with, with men. And so maybe not men aren't safe to you or, or vice versa. Maybe women aren't safe to you because of some traumatic background. And I think that this leads us to the seventh aspect of a healthy healing community. And that is to seek nuanced, sometimes specialized community. See, no one person except Jesus can meet all your needs. In fact, it's not realistic or fair to assume that your best friend in church can handle all your stuff. Uh, I mean, your pastor certainly isn't Jesus. Your spouse or your mother or father, they're not Jesus. But Jesus has given us a wider community that each play a part in our lives. So you may need a pastor for pastoral care and understanding the scriptures and walking with you through something. But you might also need a therapist or a counselor to help you remove some of those grave clothes. And you might need a close friend or a few friends that you could confide in. And you might need someone further down the road who can help mentor you. And believe it or not, your healing might also include you mentoring or walking with someone else in their pain and struggle. See, you don't have to have it all put together to be of use to someone else. In fact, if that were the case, no one could help anyone. As Nancy Hodge likes to say, it takes a bunch of spokes to keep the wheels spinning. And we need the full breadth of Christian community to help us in the healing process. Finally, I want to close by reminding you of something that you already know, I guess. And that's that healing takes courage and timing. Maybe you're not feeling the invitation toward healing at this time. Maybe your life is too full, 
too complicated right now to reach out to a pastor or a counselor. Maybe you need to wait until you can commit to the process of healing. And I want to say to you and to all of us that Jesus has paid for your sins, past, present, future. This whole conversation we're having about healing and grave clothes and community, it's not about perfection. Engaging in these seven aspects doesn't make you more lovable to Jesus. And if you can't fathom participating in them right now, it doesn't make you less lovable to Jesus. You are loved. You are redeemed. You are saved in Christ. What we're talking about today is healing. And it ought to be a gift to us, not a burden. So bless you. Go in grace.